Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly podcast, where you'll get the real rundown of what's going on in Scottish politics. We have the interviews, the gossip, and sometimes the laughs. So please join us. And remember, when anyone tells you they're not interested in politics, you tell them you know a podcast that can help them out with that. And you can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. So enjoy. Hello and welcome to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly look at the world of Scottish politics. I'm Chris Marshall, Deputy Editor of Holyrood, and on this edition of the podcast, we round off Pride Month with an interview with drag queen and independent supporter Lady Rampant. Lady Rampant was last year named Best Political Drag Queen and is part of the Out for Indie campaign. She talks to editor Mandy Rhodes about Pride and the ongoing debate over trans rights. First, I'm joined by journalists Jenny Davidson and Andrew Learmans to discuss what's in the new edition of Hollywood Magazine. Jenny, you've been uh, working on something about Kirsty, Hollywood's fictional child. Can you explain uh, who Kirsty is and and the issue that you've been looking at? Yeah, so Kirsty is our Hollywood baby. She was born in May 2016 at the beginning of the last parliament. And she's basically um, a means to kind of test whether politicians are improving the lives um, of children in our country. So she was our fictional child. She was born in one of the most deprived areas of Scotland. We haven't specified where, but one of the most deprived areas. She's living in a single parent family with her mum. So we've just we've just come back to her periodically and just looked at, well, okay, this policy or that policy, how does that affect her? And as she goes on in age, you know, how is her development perhaps compared to her peers, maybe in a richer area? How has growing up in poverty affected her? What are some of the issues that are going on in her life? So that's the kind of background. And, you know, I'm ashamed to say we've got to this point and we really haven't talked about Kirsty's dad. Um, we know she's living with her mum. We've mentioned her dad occasionally um, as having contact with her. And it was really last year when she was getting to the age of four that I was thinking, I wonder what's going on now with her dad, you know, would she be seeing him? Um, what's the, you know, what's the chance they're still in contact? And if they're not, what effect would that have on her? And actually, it was quite difficult to get that um, information. At the time, I didn't have a chance to follow up, but I've come back to it this year. So Kirsty's now five and I've, I've looked at her dad. And actually, when I started to explore it, there's a whole load of stuff around dads that's just really shocking, the way they've really been marginalised and, and kind of edged out the picture and treated as a an optional extra parent rather than equal to the mums in in all sorts of way from the presumption in in the court system and in culture that if parents are separated the child will probably live with the mum and maybe have contact with the dad at, at weekends or holidays to the portrayal in literature of, of families often just the mum and children and not the dad um referring to the dad perhaps as the uh, non-resident parent or the the contact parent excluding dads quite often from from everything to the um the sort of the birth and the, the maternity services health visitor services up to schools where you know the communication may just be with the mums and and don't necessarily even speak directly to the dads and and just the the entire set of our, our society that that doesn't actually cater for the reality that many parents are separated and and that both parents are really really important 
Yeah, you've had quite a lot of um, interesting feedback from readers on on the piece, Jenny. Yeah, yeah. So there's just a, quite a few people have contacted me to say they're really glad that I'm raising this issue, that this hasn't received the attention that it needs to, and, and just that they really hope that MSPs pay attention and actually pick up on this um fact that you know dads are essential to children's lives and, and some of the issues around dads in our society mm-hmm. and, the, and there was um within the the hollywood office there was some uh chat about brutally killing kirsty off um in the current parliament but we've we've decided not to do that uh so what what, what do you think is, is going to happen to her next no, Kirsty lives. Well, obviously, the key thing um, that we know about for her future is she's starting school in August. So that's going to be a big milestone. And obviously, we'll be coming back to her um, educational attainment and, you know, where she might be as she starts school and, and after she starts school compared to some of her, her peers. And obviously, there there are ongoing issues around poverty, around, we've mentioned her mum's mental health hasn't been good. We'll need to come back to how does her relationship with her dad um, continue after this there's yeah there's lots of things I mean the interesting thing obviously with a fictional baby is you have to decide what happens next um, yeah. because she's got a life story but equally we're looking at more broadly what things might be like in different sets of circumstances for children like her. Mm-hmm. And Andrew uh, you've been looking at the perennial of Covid and uh, you, you've come to rather some rather uh, sobering conclusions about uh, what the future might hold. Yes, yeah, so I was uh, tasked with doing something of a, a counter to all this talk of Freedom Day and the light at the end of the tunnel and normality being within our grasp. Um, I spoke to Dr. Christine Tate Burkard, who is uh, an epidemiologist uh, at Edinburgh University's Roslyn Institute, about what life might look like for the next few years. First of all, she says we're going to have to live with SARS CoV. To uh, probably forever. Uh, so for the next wee while, that likely means repeat vaccination for the adult population. So we've got a better understanding of how jabs protect us from disease um, and testing. Testing is probably going to be around uh, for several more years. Uh, I asked if she thought the uh, we could get a COVID mutation that could uh, defeat the vaccine, um, and she said it was. Uh, and these are these are words that are pretty chilling. Uh, it's difficult to predict. Um, she said. As long as we have countries where we've got high infection rates and low vaccination numbers, uh, then we have the perfect environment for the virus to evolve. And guess what? We have countries with high infection rates and low vaccination numbers. Um, uh, Last month, the UN pointed out that 75% of all jabs have been administered in just 10 countries. Um, There are still more than 100 countries where not a single dose has been put into an arm. so it's it's incredibly tricky, um, you know, and 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 then it's about how you get those doses to all those countries. So we've had this, uh, we had the G seven uh, a couple of weeks back, and they said they agreed uh, uh, to 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 to, I think it was a billion doses um, to to help to the global south, the developing world, um, you know, but getting that's probably not going to be enough, you know, because it's thought we need around 11 billion doses of vaccine to fully inoculate the world. Um, and actually, uh, as much as we can go, well, let's get 11 billion doses, the, the the practicalities of doing that is is quite tricky, you know. It's not just a question about patents and intellectual property, but, you know, there's logistical problems um, with ramping up production as well, because yeah. especially because you've got things like Pfizer and Moderna, which are use new technology, Um so I think uh, the, the research was that I saw was that the pre-pandemic, if you were to add up 
all the doses of vaccines made by every factory in the world, you get a figure between 3.5 billion and 5.5 billion. So yeah, we're still very far away from anywhere near vaccinating the world, which means we're probably still very far away from anything approaching the the old normality mm-hmm. and just to just to be uh, even more pessimistic for a moment i mean right at the start of the pandemic i read lots of um people saying that you know the nature of viruses is that it's not really in their interest to kill everyone uh they infect because then they can't be transmitted so easily but i've recently read things that, that seem to suggest well that's not happening with this particular virus because a lot of people have it before they even realize they're ill and it could continue to get more and more deadly and more and more transmissible. Isn't that the case? I've, that's God, that's really depressing. Um, so, so yesterday morning, here's a, here's a wee sort of uh, behind the scenes uh, uh, insight. Yesterday morning, my, my daughter had a, a cough, and today the cough got even worse. And it's just like, oh no, oh no, it's, oh it's it can't be. Please God, no. So we went for a PCR test this morning. We uh, and apparently we'll get results back in this afternoon. So I'm kind of just sitting here waiting to find out, you know, what it says if we've oh, got well. the coronavirus. Because I mean, it's, it's it's the last day of school. I mean, it's it's going to happen. You know, on the last day of school, not only would it ruin her holidays, but it would ruin the holidays of all of her classmates and her teachers and most of the staff in the school. So we're really hoping it's not coronavirus. Uh, well, because yeah, fingers it, crossed on that one, Andrew. Because yeah, um, she's patient zero, then you know she's going to have no friends next year. No. Um, the, on the one one optimistic note, however, is that although the the number of cases in Scotland seems to be on the rise, the number of people that are ending up seriously ill in hospital uh, is not sort of keeping pace with with what it did earlier in the pandemic. So that does at least suggest that the vaccines are uh, having having an impact. Yeah. So I think Nicholas Sturgeon said yesterday the number of people being admitted to hospital with coronavirus has fallen around from ten percent of reported positive cases, which was what we had at the start of the year in that sort of wave then down to around 5% now. So it's still, it's still, you know, it's that's a huge drop, but it's also still a fairly significant number of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jenny, on the subject of uh, Kirsty, you mentioned educational attainment and education has been very much uh, in the news uh, this week in Scotland with, with the scrapping of uh, the, the SQA, the Scottish Qualifications Authority. I mean, do you, do you think that amounts to a kind of um, an overhaul of the, of the education system in Scotland? I, th- I think we're not necessarily expecting a, a complete overhaul. I mean, actually, it was interesting. So this all came out of a, an OECD report on education in, in Scotland. And obviously, um, attainment and gen- generally Scottish education system has been something of a uh, perennial issue, and particularly over the last few weeks around exams and, and appeals. But actually, this report, which was delayed, it was meant to have come out before the election, and it was, it was delayed until after the election, it is quite positive I thought really in terms of saying that in general curriculum for excellence is a good idea they're on the right track Um, and actually what it talked about was some it was about the implementation mainly and about also the lack of evidence the lack of research about implementation so in fact it's quite difficult to know how how it's being interpreted in in different ways across the country and there was um, issues around um, teachers not quite knowing how to test the the core aspects of it and and therefore it becoming just about exams where it's not meant to really be just about passing exams it's about learning life skills and, and developing personal skills so there was that there it really seemed to be about the kind of gap perhaps between intention and implementation really. But yeah, 
So the, the things that have really made headlines have been about changes to the SQA and Education Scotland. So basically scrapping the SQA and replacing it with a body that's more responsible for both the curriculum and the assessment. So in a way, it's, it's not necessarily criticism of the SQA's performance, which has been what the, the news has been about previously, is purely about the actual setup of, of what the organisation does, that it doesn't actually make sense to split assessment from the curriculum. And then on kind of the opposite side of that, there, you know, there's long been criticism of the way that Education Scotland is both responsible for improvement and also inspecting and checking on improvement. So if it, you know, it's it's described as always, you know, checking its own homework, marking its yeah. own homework. Um, so those two functions are meant to be separated out, which also makes sense. So dramatic changes, perhaps in the education public bodies, maybe not so much in education itself. Although there's likely to be tweaks, and and one of the questions, obviously, that's come out this week is whether there will be exams next year. And perhaps the broader question of, you know, what do we do about exams ongoing? Do there need to, does there need to be changes to the way we actually assess courses altogether and a move away from this strong emphasis on exam performance? Yeah. Andrew, the, the report was actually surprisingly positive, given that there was lots of um, you know opposition politicians saying it had been deliberately left to be published till after the election. But it was actually overwhelmingly quite positive about the Curriculum for Excellence, wasn't it? Yeah, as Jenny was as Jenny was saying, you know, it's um, there's even possibility uh, that we could see eventually, you know, traditional exams being scrapped and replaced by a system of continuous assessment. And I think that's what some of the unions, like the EIS, want. Though uh, some of the other parties are are, are uh, not keen on on that. Um, you know, it was it was it was generally a good report. And I think it sort of uh, on the curriculum. I think whereas criticisms uh, were for things about you know the the leadership. Um, uh, about the bureaucracy and some of the jargon, you know, I think the OECD said that Scottish teachers, you know, work some of the longest hours in the developed world, um, you know, and basically, uh, you know, uh, Scottish kids who are preparing for exams were often sort of forced to learn by rote, you know, and, and teaching to the test and all that sort of stuff as well. So, yeah. And and Jenny, I mean, do you, do you think there's a public appetite for, for scrapping exams? I mean, I, I personally uh, hated exams at school and I hate the idea that uh, a whole generation of kids get away with not doing them. But um, <laughs> do, do, do you think, uh, you know, do, do you think there's a kind of public appetite there for just getting rid of exams entirely? I don't know what people would think about getting rid of exams entirely. I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I, you know, absolutely, you know, hate exams. I've always been terrible with exams. We just go to PCs. I'd sit my driving test about eight, eight times or something. Cause you know, eight times, eight oh times. Cause I would get so nervous. I would just like, you know, drive through red lights and, you know, and not being able to maneuver cause my leg was shaking so badly and things like that. So, you know, I'm, I'm very sympathetic with the idea of getting rid of exams. I just, Let's not get rid of the driving test, okay? I don't think that's that's just something. No, no, I don't. I don't think that's on the cards. continuous assessment. I don't think that's on the cards. Yeah, just just let me drive. I'll, I'll learn on the job. You know, <laughs> um, I did pass it eventually. I just like to say. <laughs> um, but but no, I think there might be concerns. I mean, obviously, the Conservatives have raised concerns about getting rid of exams altogether. I feel like there might be concerns about whether it's making the system less rigorous. I mean, if you remember Nat 4s, which were entirely internally assessed, people 
didn't kind of consider them to be in the same level. But that is a cultural thing because, you know, other countries don't have such an emphasis in exams and they have perfectly good education system. So, I mean, it is partly what you're used to. Like, you know, we want we all went through exams. So, you know, how can they not go through exams and are they really learning anything if they haven't? Um, I I think there would definitely be sympathy and particularly among parents who've obviously um, seen their kids experience this year to moving towards much more internal assessment and and it makes sense because I mean the I, I can't off the top of my head remember quite what the, the four core tenets of the curriculum for excellence were but it was things about being able to speak being able to um, you know interact and, and kind of take part in modern life so things like presentation skill you know giving presentations in class write reports do group work where you actually discuss things and problem solve are, are much more along the lines of what the curriculum for excellence is trying to achieve than being able to just remember stuff and, and kind of pour it out into a piece of paper on, on one day and one hour kind of thing. So I suspect there would be quite a lot of sympathy for something that's maybe more balanced at the upper level. Um, and I did see it mentioned somewhere that the advanced hire, I think some kids had fed back, the advanced hires were much more what they were thinking of along the lines of that in terms of this kind of interaction and, and sort of problem solving. Yeah. So, I mean, Andrew, we, we heard a lot in the in the last parliament about the importance of education, but we didn't really hear very much about the sort of substance of reforming it. Do you think education is going to be one of the one of the big issues um, in the parliament, certainly going forward? Definitely. Absolutely. Um, I, I think, you know, it was one of the major issues in the election campaign, one of the major domestic issues. So I think it, it definitely will be. And I think you've got um, certainly looking at, you know, uh, uh, Oliver Mundell, who's the new Tory Education Secretary, and Michael Mara, who's the new Labour, sorry, not uh, Secretary, uh, sh- Spokesperson or, or Shadow Minister, yep. and, and Michael Mara, who's, who's who's looking after the brief for Labour. You know, they're both very keen to see changes. And you've got Shirley Ann Somerville, who's, you know, already talking about reforming, scrapping the SQA and reforming Education Scotland. And so I think, yeah, I think it's going to be a, a, a fairly um, dominant issue over the next few years. Great. Okay, thanks very much both. Um, And uh, now we can listen to our interview um, between Mandy Rhodes and Lady Rampant. So this feels like a very strange Pride Month when we'd normally be celebrating diversity among the LGBTQ plus community. But there's so much anger around at the moment. We've got Stonewall being criticised. We've got the whole ongoing debate around the Gender Recognition Act proposals, trans rights and women's rights being seen as in conflict with each other. And basically, I guess, groups of people who I think would normally be on the same side fighting for equality at each other's throats. So, Lady Rampant, as a drag queen, as a gay man, as someone who identifies as being genderqueer and someone who describes themselves as a trans ally, what does this year's pride mean to you? And tell me, what is going on with the world? Well, that is a very big question, Mandy. <laughs> what is going on with the world? I think that would uh, take longer than one episode to answer. But uh, yeah, of course, um, thank you for introducing me there. Um, this Pride Month is is very strange it's it's one like we've had like no other I mean most of us are celebrating in different ways this year whether that be at home or just meeting in small groups where we would normally be having large marches across the country and large gatherings to celebrate so with Covid considered of course it's very different but coming on to what you mentioned there as well I do think that there does seem to be an underlying tone to Pride Month 
this year, that it's not as celebratory as it normally is. And um, in, in recent months, we've seen a lot of our third sector organisations for the LGBTQ plus community come under attack and come under criticism from some, but at a time when we should really be celebrating the achievements that we've achieved for the LGBTQ plus community and at the same time acknowledging and identifying where there's work still to be done and pushing on for that. So yes, I think this this Pride Month is a, a bit of a, a strange one, if I'm honest. I mean, for people like, I think, probably you and I, at different ends of the generational spectrum, if you like, um, it feels like a febrile moment. I mean, for me, if I was to generalise and say middle-aged, middle-class feminist, being accused of being a turf, um, I've, I just find the language right now really uncomfortable. And and I guess that's where it'd be good for us to just get a couple of things straight. I mean, pronouns have become almost weaponized. Uh, people become a bit uncomfortable about how they should address people. So right now, how do I address you? Well, I would go by my stage name, which is my drag name, Lady Rampant. And that is a more feminine persona who uses the pronouns she, her. When I'm performing in drag or when I'm taking part in anything in my drag persona, that's always the pronouns that I would use. And I think that just to pick up on your point there, that you think that pronouns are potentially being weaponized, I guess that is probably one way of looking at it. But my perception of that is that pronouns are just becoming a bit more of the norm and we should be stating those um, at the beginning of conversations. We should be laying them out in our email chains at, at the end of our name and just sort of normalizing the practice of using pronouns to be more inclusive of the LGBTQ plus community. Do you recognise, though, within that, that it can make language a bit more uncomfortable, that people are worried about getting, well, they should be worried about getting things wrong and not just, you know, lambast people with how they think, but that can also stifle conversation. Um, I think it can stifle conversation if, if you if you let it, but I think it should become a practice as normal as putting on your seatbelt. I don't think it's something that really has to get in the way of anything. It's just a practice that should be standard, whether that is, like I said, adding it onto your email chains or just if introducing yourself with your pronouns, if you want to um, enter a group setting in that way, just so that you want to be clear from the outset how you would like to be addressed. I don't think that's something that necessarily stifles debate. I think it's probably something that can actually be were conducive to debate and, and lead to more inclusive and better conversations. I mean, we've talked just a couple of times, but I guess you don't strike me as someone that gets particularly angry or aggressive about these things. You want to listen to what people are saying. I mean, what would be your advice to others who clearly are getting, you know, angry with each other when a few years ago, I think we'd have all been surprised that this was happening? Uh, well, I think the key words that you mentioned there, Mandy, is listening. And I think that's really important. Um, I guess that, of course, you, you mentioned that there may be legitimate discussion and debate about the Gender Recognition Act reform. Of course, that is a piece of legislation. Um, and I think it's important to listen to both sides. But in relation to the issue of, of pronouns and being more inclusive, then I think we really should be listening to those who are directly affected by this and members of the LGBTQ plus community, particularly the trans community, and listening to them on trans issues as opposed to just saying, well, we think this is what trans issues is and this is what it should be, when really we might not be affected 
or or be part of that community. So it's just listening to other people and and being considerate and respectful at the same time. I mean, I think we'll come on to lots of issues within that. But I suppose one of the things that I've experienced myself is that you almost become, um, people decide what you are. They decide what you think. You might have things quoted back at you that aren't necessarily true. And everyone becomes a bit entrenched in positions. So even on something like this on the podcast where during Pride Month I've really wanted to try to have lots of people on all kind of sides of this discussion I don't think there's just one or two sides come on I find that that just becomes impossible because people have decided that you've got a particular viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And do you mean that's a particular viewpoint of discussing with you or do you just mean the guests come on with a particular view and don't seem to budge from that? I think both. So, for instance, I have certainly gone to the Trans Alliance and other equality groups, Stonewall, and wanted to get them to come on the podcast to discuss some of the issues that are going on. And there's just a a blank on it. It just doesn't happen. So then, you know, I had someone last issue from Stonewall, one of the original founders of Stonewall, but is now seen as a critic of Stonewall. So it almost becomes self-perpetuating that I would then be seen to be presenting one side of the discussion. Mm -hmm. Right, of course. No, I can understand that. And I, I think maybe it's unfortunate that you've not been able to speak to members of the Trans Alliance or Stonewall, because I'm sure they would be able to articulate their point of view and their stance very well as to why they are in support of and the LGBTQ plus community as a whole, and not maybe just LGB and, and potentially looking at everyone within the community. Um, and I guess I probably align myself more with that side of things and with our third sector organisations who are fighting, in my opinion, for everyone in the LGBTQ plus community. Do you think? Do you understand how it's got to this situation? I mean, I I think you know you and I can talk about the GRA reforms um, as we go into this, but it just feels to me as if it's become a much wider discussion, a, a much bigger discussion about sex and gender, um, what those two things mean, and where they're being conflated, and why that might cause problems. But why has it become so febrile? Do you think? Um, oh God, another big question. I, I'm not entirely sure. I think when you zoom in on the the debate, the discussion of the Gender Recognition Act reform, um, I would agree that I think people take these issues much broad, broadly or more broad and, and look at them in society and then sort of almost like weaponize that against each other. And what I really think, to be honest, I think what we're seeing right now in society is a lot of the trans community or non-binary community being being weaponized or being used in this sort of culture war or, or being used to sort of take a side and, and attack each other in politics. And I think we're, we're seeing some of history repeating itself. I mean, I wasn't alive during this period, but in the 80s and, uh, and before then, when gay men were were being used with the media to, to stir up a culture war and, and people being pitched against each other, I think we're now seeing history repeat itself to some extent with the trans community. Um, and I think we, we have to learn from history as well and just realise exactly what work it is we're doing. Instead of fighting each other, we should be moving forward as a society that just benefits everyone and works for everyone. And unfortunately, that doesn't always seem to be the case. I think I, I obviously was alive during those <laughs> times. and was very much fighting for gay equality. I mean, as many feminists were. I mean, I suppose I would take issue with it 
being like history repeating itself. I mean, I, you know, when you talk to people around this issue, it isn't about people wanting to remove rights from anybody. Um, women may feel that they are seeing some of their rights removed, but certainly not for trans people. But I think, you know, I guess you will always get bigots attach themselves to discussions and campaigns around equality. Well, I would probably disagree to some extent, because I think if you look at the UK government and, and the issues that have been going on with the Equality Committee, there does seem to be a, a chance where our rights can be rolled back. And it does seem that a lot of the work that's being done these days by the third sector organisations is trying to ensure that we're not going backwards. I mean, they should be ensuring that we're still going forwards. But from what I've seen online in some articles and things, it seems like a lot of their work is spent making sure that we don't go backwards. So I don't think it's, I mean, it's 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 one argument to say that no one's taking rights away, but it could happen very easily. And I think that's where my worry lies, because we should be moving forward and not moving back. I mean, I take that point that people, it's almost a fear of things that could happen and that, and that equality can feel very fragile and rights can feel very fragile. But I mean, I was listening to your podcast that you did um, some weeks back around all of this. And on your discussion about sex and gender, I thought it was really interesting that you basically were saying exactly the things that I have said, that sex is different from gender, that sex is binary and gender isn't. I would probably be accused of being a transphobe for saying that, but you wouldn't be. I don't necessarily think so. Uh, maybe you have in the past, maybe that's been your experience, but in my view, sex and gender are are two different things. And that is something that, of, of course, it, it, I guess it matters to some extent, but it depends how one likes to self-describe. If they are focusing more on their gender, then that's up to that person, then that's what I would, if they presented themselves in that way to me, then I would accept that. Yeah, no, and I think, you know, you and I discussed that before, that there's almost a difference between having an academic argument, if you like, or a discussion about what sex and gender is, but then also having somebody sit in front of you and respecting whoever they believe themselves to be. Of course, yes. And I guess that's part of the point that I said as well at the beginning of how someone introduces themselves to me or how they choose to present themselves to me is what I will take because it is that person's identity. It's 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 the way that they want to be perceived or the way that they are. And to me, that's the most important because it's it's up to that individual. I mean, I guess when we're talking about gender, let's talk about your journey to being a drag queen. Because that's, um, again, you know, for me, I guess it, there's a generational thing. And uh, uh, I... I grew up with the likes of Daniel LaRue. You might not even know who that is, but I don't know. But, you know, and Stanley Baxter. And it always felt like a quite a regressive type of thing to do. It was exploiting women's stereotypes that lots of us were moving away from. Now, the whole movement around drag is very different. It's yes, a lot uh, more political and a lot more progressive people that are interested in it. Yeah, of course, absolutely. And I guess there may be some concerns there that drag is sort of, um, it's trying to imitate women or it's trying to make fun of women or or exacerbate stereotypes. But in actual fact, that's really not the case. And speaking from my own experience, I, I've always considered myself an intersectional feminist, but it's actually through drag that I've been able to become involved in much more activism and, and feminism through drag. So it's, it's, for me, it's not something to attack women or invade women's space or take women back. It's actually, it's a way of, again, of going forward. 
And I think what you mentioned there with the the maybe the generational thing about drag is that drag has, uh, from my knowledge of drag, has changed so much over the years. And what was maybe just seen as a just an entertainment in pubs is now a completely completely different ball game. I mean, we have drag artists doing almost everything you can imagine, clothing deals, branding deals, entertainers on television everywhere. Um, and it's, it is a different ball game now, I would say. So how did you even become interested in it? Well, for me, actually, it was quite interesting because uh, out of drag, I, I studied law. I went to Glasgow University and did a law degree. And as much as I was enjoying my law degree, I wasn't being as creative as I liked. So every year for Halloween, I would design a costume or a makeup look or something like that. Not necessarily a drag look. It was much more a Halloween look. Um, and it became my favourite time of the year. I loved it. I loved Halloween coming up and all the preparation for it. And I thought to myself, you know, I could do this all year round. I could be creative if even more so than just once across the year. Um, and it was actually my family and my friends had said to me, you know, you would be a really good drag artist. Have you ever considered it? And I said, oh, no, I don't think drag's for me. It's it's too extreme. I don't want to do drag. Uh, but the, as the steps came on, I realized, do you know what? I really do think I want to do drag. And that was my sort of gateway gateway into it. And, and there's lots happened since then. It's completely different to what, I like, what it was like when I started now. But that's how I really got into it in the beginning. And you talk about your political activism and the drag being together. I mean, did one start the other? Um, hmm, no, I wouldn't say so because I was studying law. So I, um, I, didn't, I didn't start drag at Glasgow University. I actually started drag in, um, in Amsterdam and at the University of Amsterdam doing a master's in international law. And I chose to do the master's because I was so interested in current affairs and law and politics. And then, obviously, the decision to start drag happened. One didn't necessarily influence the other. But what did happen with drag was once I started drag, I realised what I would be able to bring to the table of drag was my interests and my background. And that's something that I could do quite well. So they didn't they didn't influence each other. But then I sort of subsumed my background into drag and just... Uh, pursued political activism and drag and now I get to combine both so it's the best thing ever. And would you do you think you would be political if you didn't have the drag? I mean I suppose I'm just trying to work out whether one does feed the other. Do you feel more comfortable in drag when you're doing political activism? Oh that's a good question. Um, Not necessarily more comfortable. I'm comfortable out of drag being politically active and I'm comfortable in drag being politically active online and at marches and different things. Um, no, what I, what I would say is that drag gives me an increased audience. I have much more visibility with drag uh, than I do out of drag. And I think that it's probably that increased audience that's allowed me to take my activism further, where maybe I wouldn't be right now if I was just doing some activism work out of drag. It's drag that has taken it even further. So that's mostly why all of my activism work lies with drag because it's almost became subsumed into my drag persona and um yeah yeah and you do a good line in Nicola Sturgeon don't you (laughs) (laughs) well I do like Nicola Sturgeon yes she is uh she is someone that I look up to yes 
I'm going to come back to the uh, Out for Indy and the activism you've done around that. But when yeah. we spoke last week, you were at your grand's house. And I week, was. <laughs> and yes. the, in- the internet connection wasn't brilliant, but it led us to talk about how your family had reacted. I mean, you know, at the yes. end of the day, their son goes off to university to study law. And <laughs> but, but the reason we're then talking is because of the drag. So, you know, how did they react well, I mean, uh, they've always been very supportive of me. I'm I'm very fortunate, and especially at Pride Month, because not every LGBTQ plus person has supportive home life. Um, and I'm very, very fortunate to say I always have had. So when I when I said I was starting drag, um, my parents were like, "All right, okay, is this just a one off?" And then I was like, "No, I'm going to keep doing it." And um, it didn't necessarily take them a while to get their heads around. It was just like, "Oh, our son's now a drag queen." So there's, there's a reasonable period of adjustment there. Um, but I've been doing drag for two and a half years now, and and my parents are fantastic. They absolutely love Lady Rampant. They share all my photos on their social media. They um, uh, they they just love it. My dad drops me off at gigs sometimes. And it's very much what you said about going off to university and coming back um, as a drag queen, because my mum always says to me, because I started drag in Amsterdam, you know, you went away on the plane to Amsterdam and I get two people back. And (laughs) she says that to me and it couldn't be more true. That's literally what happened. I had two suitcases of my own and two suitcases um, with drag stuff in it as well. So... (laughs) Is, Is drag, I mean, drag seems so often about gay men exploring their identity as men is mm-hmm. that what it's about oh my goodness absolutely not no actually if uh, there's such an outdated view because if that was the case um it would be so exclusionary of everyone who takes part in drag so we have drag queens we have drag kings we have drag things drag drag clowns whatever you want drag to be it can be anything and then the flip side of that is any person, whether they are a member of the LGBTQ plus community, whether they be a trans man, trans woman, a non-binary individual, a, a gay man, straight man, straight woman, at all, whatever, anyone can do any type of drag. So it's it's genuinely open to anyone. So why why is drag particularly um, part of the if you like the LGBT community? I mean, why why is that so aligned? Well, there was it's an art form that has just been practiced throughout the LGBTQ plus community for years. I, I guess it has been a space for people to explore their creativity, to explore their gender. And it's just, I, th- I think because the LGBTQ plus community is historically accepting, it's where people felt safe and comfortable to do this. And if you look at the, the Stonewall Inn uh, uh, years ago in New York at the drag performers that were performing there many years before I was even born, it's got a long you history. You keep saying that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I realise I realize my position in this discussion. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm 25 in two weeks and the issues I'm talking about here have existed much longer than I am. So I recognise my place in this timeline. <laughs> but at the same time, um, yeah, I, I think it's just been a space for, uh, for people and drag artists to be comfortable to explore their art in. I think, um, I, I guess, an example of how complicated and messy this can all become is when RuPaul made some probably quite ill-thought-out comments about trans women not being able to be queens. I mean, do you do you remember that? Uh, yes, I remember that a couple of years ago yeah. now and the discussion surrounding that. But again, like I said, drag is for anyone and anyone can take part in 
any type of drag. And, and you see seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race where there are trans competitors um, who take part in the show. So, yeah, especially the, the upcoming season, All Star 6, has two trans women who have been cast to take part. What myths do you think you would want to try and counter about drag and, and, and the way that you can also use it to educate people around the whole LGBTQ plus community? That's a that's a great question. Thank you for asking that. Um, well, I have been called many names online. Some of them are, are very nasty and I'm not going to repeat them. And some very serious allegations of, of, of what I am from people who don't know me. And um, I would say that these things, these old homophobic tropes and, and, and these these horrible this horrible language uh, is not true. We are not trying to take advantage of, of children or, or invade anyone's space. We are really just pursuing an art form um, as our own individual and authentic self. And that doesn't mean taking away someone else's rights or, or um, impinging on someone else's space. It's literally just being ourselves. Um, for me, I, I do work with a lot of third sector organisations. So I think a lot of people think that drag is, is sexual and is sexualized, and it has to be nudity and it has to be 18 plus and things like that. But the, with the work that I do, I work with young people. I work with LGBT Youth Scotland. I, I work with the uh, Thai Scotland campaign. So drag doesn't necessarily have to be those things because it comes from an underground culture there may be some artists who take part in that art form and that is valid but not everyone does and probably the majority of drag artists don't it's just genuinely seen as an inclusive art form do you think that is one of the big issues because there was clearly a big controversy a couple of years back when mary black accompanied a drag queen into the schools and then that blew up into a big story about what was appropriate not appropriate for children um yeah and i understand that there may be some legitimate concerns of parents surrounding drag artists just as there should be the the pantomime dame or the actor going into the school or or anyone these are legitimate concerns of parents that don't just apply to drag and it, to actually just apply it to drag is probably quite exclusionary and and discriminatory because Anybody going into a school should be assessed to be appropriate and, and make sure that they are they're fit to work for or with an audience of children. And um, yeah, of course, I remember those issues that happened a few years ago with the drag artist. And I think the problem there was that the artist's social media platforms um, that were later found by some parents, it wasn't necessarily the event itself, which was yeah. actually apparently meant to have been a really nice evening or, or, or day even, which Mary Black, I believe, had defended and said that this was a nice thing. This was reading stories to kids and it was showing, uh, giving a message of inclusivity. So that wasn't the issue itself, I don't think. I think um, it was the, the social media. Yeah, which is a problem anyway, isn't it? I guess people just have to be sensible if you're doing these things. Well, yeah, I mean, of course, I, I have... I, not that I would be posting anything explicit anyway, but I just know that there, that I have an audience on my social media and I'm fortunate to have some fans and, and followers and people who who follow me who are perhaps underage as well. So I, I am careful of what I put on social media, both my my drag profile and my other profiles. On the, I was going to go back to the Out for Indy work. So you worked with the SNP, didn't you, with Out for Indy on the GRE reform proposals. Yes. I just wonder how frustrated you might feel where we are now I mean it is frustrating I think it's something that probably should have happened a, 
a long time ago. Of course, COVID happened and belts had to be shelved. But I know that this is an issue that has been going on for some time. And I feel that the Gender Recognition Act, I know that the SNP have promised to listen to to all sides going forward in this parliamentary session and make sure everyone's views are taken into account because it is seen by some as, not by me, as a controversial piece of legislation. Um, so, yeah, I do feel frustrated. I think we should have had this done before now. I think the people who are suffering are the trans community because this is a piece of legislation which is going to make their lives better and a, a more streamlined process as opposed to having to prove their identity to a panel of experts. I mean, I guess the example I can give is if I had to prove my sexuality to a panel of experts. That just seems absolutely bizarre to me. If I had to prove that I was actually a gay man, what would they ask me? What What would they want proof of? And I think that if you compare that to the trans community, it just seems bizarre. No, I agree with you, but I suppose when you look at the extreme ends and the things that people have ended up focusing on, like the risks to single-sex spaces, I mean, you proving that you're a gay man doesn't affect anybody else in any space, does it? Whereas some people may feel, well, actually, a male-bodied person going into a women's prison does cause a risk to some women, potentially. Well, then I think you could use the argument that straight men could say that gay men in their spaces and their bathrooms could could do the exact same thing. I do think you would have had people saying that um, uh, years ago, maybe even still now. Um, I think the issue with, with um, single-sex spaces, um, I think that there's, from my little knowledge of this, but I think there's actually little evidence to suggest that where gender recognition uh, is streamlined to self-ID, such as Brazil, there's very little evidence to show that there's been any sort of harm or attacks done to women in in single-sex spaces. So please correct me if I'm wrong in that, but there is little evidence to suggest that. And I think that 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 is quite... As an argument that's put forward, let's say, by gender-critical individuals, it's an argument that's that's put forward a lot of the time, but it's, it's a very small part of it. I mean, if you go to... If you go to a festival and use a cubicle and, and someone goes in before you, is that not using the same space as someone else on a, a portaloo or something like that? It just seems a very, it's a very thin argument, in my opinion. I mean, I agree with you on those kind of things. I suppose the evidence, though, does exist and is there that where some people who have then identified as women and been transferred into the female estate in prisons, and we're always looking at the extreme ends, but then that's why protections are usually put in place. Uh, There have been assaults. So, you know, I can see why people do have concerns I guess the issue for me is that these things weren't properly all discussed. And if they had been in a calm and collected fashion, we might not have got to the place we've got to now. Um, And it feels like all of that needs to calm down before people can have a proper discussion. Yeah, um, I I would just pick up on your point there just about the issue with prisons, where you go to the, the extreme example of assaults, then I'll go to the extreme example of how many women in prison have committed suicide and, and who have died after being transferred into all male prisons. So there, there's also the danger on the other side that you don't put someone into the correct prison and therefore that person also takes their own life or is murdered. And there's many cases of that happened in the, the UK. And I believe even cases that went I could be wrong, but I think there was a case that even went to the European Court of Human Rights about the issues of um, allocation of prisons in the UK. 
So it is, it's a very serious argument, I, I yeah. would say. I mean, I don't know the facts either on that. So it's probably, again, one of those things that people, a lot gets said at the moment, and it's about picking through it and working out what's true and what isn't true. But I mean, actually, one of the biggest things that I think that could happen now that would improve the lives for trans people is to do something about things like waiting lists for gender mm. clinics. I mean, that's something that the Scottish government could have dealt with long before now, and yet the waiting lists are horrendous. Yeah, I think the waiting lists in Scotland and England across the UK are absolutely awful for trans people. And I I, I know that this really, really affects the, the trans community. I've spoken to trans people on my podcast, I have um, I have trans friends who are waiting at these clinics and who don't really see an option but to then go private and start a GoFundMe or to start a crowd fundraiser because they just they are just living in torture really in everyday life because they can't get access to the the public gender identity clinic and and feel the choice that they the only choice they have is to go private which is awful um so yeah that is something that scotland could do much better i think we have four gender identity clinics in scotland i think we need much more i think we need more funding to the gender identity clinics and more more specialists and trained professionals um that there absolutely I mean, like you, when I've spoken to trans people, that has been the focus for for them. They've said to me that that would have been where life could have been much more improved. And I suppose the issue is that self-ID has almost become the holy grail of all of this. And it's also the thing that's caused probably most of the toxicity in the discussion. Um, And I'm not quite sure how you get through it now. I mean, what would you be saying to Nicola Sturgeon if you had the opportunity now? Oh, I would, I would love to say a lot to Nicholas Sturgeon. Um, oh, I don't know. I think uh, I, I, what I would say to Nicola and is if the SNP is, is truly a party for the LGBTQ plus community, which I do think they are, I think there are some problematic individuals, but I do think that they are a party for the LGBTQ plus community. And I would say just continue to show that, just continue to, to prove to the LGBTQ plus community, all of them that you support them, particularly the trans community, because of course words are words are words, and, and action is another thing. And I know that um, and Nicola had posted a video on on social media a few months ago saying that she would not tolerate transphobia at all, and that's great. I think that's a, a, a great development, uh, but I also think we do need some action as well, just to ensure that these follow these uh, promises are actually followed up on. I suppose my question that would be what is the transphobia because I you know do you do you see an increase in transphobia among the community at the moment well I, I'm not a trans individual and I've I've not really been experienced uh, or have experienced any transphobic abuse so I can't speak for the trans community but what I can say is that when I'm speaking to friends when I'm speaking to individuals when I'm I'm following uh, trans people online they are uh, reporting this happening all the time um, and also we see a lot of things being shared of it happening a lot not just in Scotland or the UK but other parts of the world and what they are saying what the trans community are saying is that transphobia is on the rise and 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 people are are, are really coming into harm's way now um, as they have for a long time so I as a trans ally I'm listening to that community and if this is what they're saying then I, I believe that and I can see that through uh, people I follow and other friends. Do you see though that women are also women who will be saying that they're trans allies too but almost feel like they're having to choose I mean do you recognize that women 
may have valid concerns, and they're certainly not transphobic, but that is how they're being painted. Um, well, I think that there, there may be some valid concerns of women's, but uh, of women, but I don't think that that can ever stand in the way or be any sort of cloak for transphobia or any cloak to sort of um, to use that to to potentially be hatred or to to show discrimination against trans women. I think, in my opinion, as a, as a feminist, as as an intersectional feminist, then feminism should include all women and, and should be looking to better the position of all women in society, inclusive of trans women. So, yeah, I think there may be some valid concerns of women, but again, it, it can't be used as a cloak for transphobia. But so I, I was just going to pick you up on what you said there about trans women. So are trans women trans women or do you say trans women are women? Trans women are women. And that has probably become one of the most divisive bits in all of this discussion because it's meant that what you would call cis women have had to think, well, what does that mean about being a woman for me? If, you're, if your feminism has been rooted in your biology, and as we talked earlier, sex is binary, so sex does exist and gender exists in all its wonderful um, formulations, whatever your gender is. I would say that that's probably uh, maybe even an old-fashioned view of feminism. I think this is something that second-wave feminism has been criticised for, as um, focusing mainly on upper-middle-class white women. And now I think we're maybe even on to fifth-wave feminism, wherever we are now. I would say that that is, is looking at things in the present day and looking at things in the digital age and using the digital age for activism, which is inclusive of all women, including trans women who are women. And I think, you know, most, I suppose that's been the difficulty as well in this time, that in a time of the pandemic, when everybody you feel has come together on certain things and you can see other people's vulnerabilities, at the same time, we've had this terrible, febrile discussion, which is so painful. It it, it is a painful discussion. And I think um, there are probably a, a a lot of people who are hurt by this. And I know you said you don't really see how we can go forward. I think there's a lot of big questions to, to be asked out there. Um, and I, I just hope that it is ones that, that that suits everyone. I don't think that's really going to be the case. I think that that's probably the reason we're in this position because it, like it seems there's often two camps. But in my opinion, I do think it's time that we, we do move forward and we look at what's really important and not get bogged down and a lot of these, these silly arguments and, and really heated, horrible debates and look forward as to how we can actually go forward as a more inclusive, progressive Scotland, which I'm sure everyone on both sides wants to happen. Are you optimistic about it? Um, oh, I don't know. I would say... I would say I'm worried to some extent from what I hear from the trans community. I do think what we're seeing with online abuse and attacks is very worrying. So on one hand, I am I am worried, but do you know what? I do think we are going to go forward. I do think that things are going to happen. We're not just going to stick in this stalemate forever. And if you look at other marginalised groups in society, there has been progress made for them throughout the years. So I have no doubt that hopefully there will be progress made for the trans community in the next five to 10 years preferably now yesterday would have been better but um, I do hope that we're moving forward at least
as someone much greater than I said, a week is a very long time in politics. And believe me, I know Scottish politics is never boring. So don't leave it long. Make sure you come back and join us on Politically Speaking. And remember that you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and do tell your friends because everybody has an interest in politics.